0: podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to episode 21 of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. Well, Happy New Year. I took a longer break than I intended so I think uh, I stopped mid-December and it's now February. I can't believe it's February already. I guess the problem with podcasting every week is that when you stop, it's difficult to start again. And there's a couple of reasons. There's, obviously, I, I live a busy life, as we all do, working a full-time job and I've got part-time study and uh, sporting interests. So I come Monday night in particular, I'm <laughs> pretty tired. But also, there's been so much going on and I've wanted to jump back in and thought, how can I say anything really meaningful and informed about these issues? So let's let's take a, a look at what's been happening. In Australia here, we just uh, marked January 26, which mainstream Australia recognises as Australia Day, although that's a fairly recent, um, recent thing. And for Aboriginal people, it's a day of mourning, it's a day of sorrow, it's a day to express anger. And the fact that we celebrate a national day um, is a great insult, as well as the fact that maybe we need to think about what it means to celebrate this thing we call Australia at all. And so I have a a new book that I wanted to to read and some thoughts on this whole concept of abolishing Australia and thinking about the, the myths on which we're based. And that's a lot of work and a lot of hard thinking to do. And it's interesting that Christians are divided on these sorts of issues. You see this in the States as well. There are Christians who really want to focus on individual evil and sin and can't get their heads around systemic evil, or worry about things like having acknowledgements of country uh, in churches and, and see that as problematic. So a divisive issue in the church when it shouldn't be. But then you've got such great work being done by organizations like Common Grace and the the, the Change the Heart service. I don't know if any of you were aware of that or watched that on uh, live on or on Christian television. That was a, a great thing to see that being supported. So that was one thing. Another thing, of course, is uh, what's been happening in the United States of America, and it just blows my mind the idea of armed insurrection, and that people should then turn around and say that Trump has nothing to answer for, and it's threatening unity by impeaching him for inciting violence. It reminds me some years ago of Alan Jones, who's a fairly well-known radio personality, shock jock, as we call them here, and quote unquote conservative in his views and he got into trouble for inciting violence during the the race riots the Cronulla riots so words have profound consequences but then of course there are quote unquote conservative Christians who have fears about Islam and immigration and so on who really lap up that kind of conservative media and then the more progressive types who rightly so I think, uh, think this is preaching hate and it's against the concept of loving your neighbor and so on But in the United States, there's been a dramatic turnaround in a sense. Um, and We we see Joe Biden probably exceeding the expectations of some in embracing, again, Paris and really wanting to throw his weight behind changes in the way in which the American economy works to move to a a carbon neutral future and using the leverage that a, a major player in the world such as the United States is to place pressure on other countries and, of course, in our country where it would be fair to say that the government tows the line of um, continuing to follow and invest in fossil fuels and sees that as an important part of our energy mix. Uh, makes them look more and more isolated, I think. or Well, it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. But again, of course, um, and I, I talked about this in a, a, an older program about my dissatisfaction with the label evangelical is that often evangelicals don't take the issue of climate change seriously or deny outright and you know perhaps on on the more quote-unquote progressive side there might be some who in the rush to be practical to be pragmatic might leave some aspects of doctrine behind so it's like Who's doing the most good? Those that want to, quote unquote, hold on to the truth and protect it, or those who have a more outward focus. These are important issues, and every time they come up, it's always, uh, what can I add or what can I say that's going to be useful or significant in this context? Another one, of course, and I'm not going to go into depth into the issue, is in Victoria at the moment, uh, there's legislation coming up that, um, in essence, seeks to ban all uh, ways and means in which people seek to convert or treat people who um, I, I guess to put it in one way um, non-heterosexual non-cis um, and, and teach uh, and treat these things like their um, conditions to be treated and this particularly um, relates to some aspects of church doctrine in some senses and so Christians again are, are very divided as to either seeing this legislation as preventing harm, or on the other foot, those who see it as a threat to free speech, particularly that in religious circles. So there are those who see themselves as progressive and those who see themselves as conservative. And we have to ask the question about what's progressive really mean? And is that always a good thing? You know, is it, is it a meaningful term? And what does conservative mean? And is that always a good thing? And what does that actually really mean when people say that they're conservative? What are they conserving? I actually, and I've probably made this clear in previous programs, I don't like labels altogether that much. I know they have some, a degree of validity, and I've, re- I've applied another label to myself as Christian humanist because I wanted to get away from the political tainting uh, of the term evangelical and maybe there's other problems with it as well. But I've not, over the past several years, not been a big fan of the label either progressive or conservative. I think you can fall into a conceit by holding either. I know what people are trying to do, I think, um, but are those labels the best labels to attach? And so I want to say in in this episode, this is based on a sermon I gave a couple of years ago, and it's entitled, uh, see if you get a chuckle out of this, Seven Weddings and and Funerals, How the Resurrection Challenges Our Theology. And it's from a story that Jesus tells uh, in Luke chapter 20. And so I want to say this whole idea of resurrection in Jesus' theology always challenges our theology. And so I, I guess already I'm making something of the decision because what I think unites various strands of Christianity, not all, is a belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ. And I think that that is one of those things that really breaks open whatever system of belief or whatever label we wish to apply to ourselves. So, Jesus, as you know, from time to time got up the nose of the religious elite, and that might appeal to you, um, particularly if you feel on the outer of church. In other words, every time that we make uh, a denomination or a structure or... I don't share the complete cynicism towards quote-unquote organized religion. I mean, again, what does that expression mean? If by that you mean institutions that see the, the institution as more important than the lively faith. Well, then fair enough. But not the concept of institutions per se, I don't think. But anyway, so Jesus' opponents are often portrayed as being out to to trap him. And so in, in Luke 20, we read, Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher! Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless, then the second, and the third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. So it's quite an outrageous story and it clearly comes from a point of view that's critical or critiques or doesn't believe or engage in the idea of resurrection. And the story tells us quite clearly that the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. Now, when you start to, even just reading the New Testament, if not into first, uh, sorry, Second Temple Judaism, you come to understand that there was a real plurality of judaisms not just one brand and we're seeing two here and and for time we'll just stick to those two the sadducees and the pharisees who are not in the story but shared this belief in the resurrection with jesus so sadducees only held to the teachings of the pentateuch so the first five books of the bible and certainly not the teachings of the elders like the pharisees so i guess they would say that they saw themselves as religious conservatives Of course, at the same time, they were part of the political elite in um, Jerusalem. They were wealthy and they were comfortable with the situation. Uh, Close to the high priest, who was in turn chosen uh, by Rome, ultimately, they didn't want to rock the boat. By contrast, they saw the Pharisees as religious innovators. So... An honest look at the the Hebrew Bible, you don't see much by way of an idea of a bodily resurrection. And the Pharisees also, in their desire to see Israel redeemed, believed that that would be achieved by people keeping the law perfectly. And so they were obsessed with purity laws, and who was in and who was out. And they wanted to protect the law. They built a hedge around the law. So they had this oral law, which becomes... um, in, in scripture written down later on, after after the time of Jesus. In fact, that I have read that some suggest that Pharisees derives from the, the, the word, or or derives the concept meaning Persianizers, that the idea of the resurrection was obtained from the Persians. Although Tom Wright would assert that the desire for justice and the lack of seeing that happen in the world in which we see would naturally enough lead a people to hope for not just going to heaven when you die. That's Greek thought, and I've I've hammered this home often enough. And I would hope that those people who'd consider listening to me were on the same the same page there. That the idea of going to heaven when you die is is Marx's opiate of the masses. And you think about, and I may have said this before. Um, Negro spirituals. If you can talk all you like and sing all you like about going to heaven, does that mean Therefore, that you're willing to put up with what you face in this world. Yet the the Pharisees themselves were involved in revolution against um, un, under Greek rule, and then were took part in the failed revolt against Rome. So this idea that um, of resurrection that and re- remember before Jesus, the the Jewish idea of resurrection was that. At the end times, God would return and everyone would be raised from the dead and the world would be put to rights, as Tom Wright often talks about. Jesus' genuine innovation was to say, Look, I'm the resurrection and the life. And the New Testament speaks about Jesus' resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead first. And then later on, uh, everyone else raised from the dead either to life or to judgment, but not to go to heaven, a disembodied state when you die. So what happens now doesn't matter. Whereas the Sadducees, of course, well, YOLO, as they say, or maybe they've stopped saying that now. You only live once, and therefore, along with moderns, or maybe it's postmoderns, I'm not sure. Um, really doesn't matter. So you enjoy life now as it is, uh, and don't rock the boat. So what's going on in in this story? Well, in Deuteronomy 25, it says the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed. To the name of the deceased brother, so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this is the idea that if a a, a man marries and then he dies and he doesn't have a son uh, to carry on his name, then his brother has to marry his wife, and that son will bear uh, be part of the line of the deceased brother. And yet we have this very bizarre uh, situation where they all die. So it's about inheritance and continuity based on patrilineal concerns that's down the male line and not and it's not about so it's not about reproduction per se so if you like it's a form of immortality that you might not live forever but that you have a son and then he has a son and your name is carried down and and just as there are genealogies in the Bible so your name becomes part of that genealogy and of course it's about um, that and it's also about economic security for descendants a share in the land so that um, the land would always be passed down and you'd have uh, an economic basis you'd be able to grow food and support your family so your name would live on now this of course um, stands in stark contrast to what jesus is on about in resurrection so hopefully you can see how there's If you like, there's a couple of different concepts of immortality going around. So how the story kind of works, either having sons in the name of of the first first man so that he lives on and his family is supported, or what Jesus is, is talking about, about the resurrection. And so we'll unpack that in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. Um, just before the break, we were talking about this parable about seven unlucky brothers who will die without having a son and how Jesus, in, um, or, or rather the Sadducees, I think uh, are bringing an issue about what it really means to live on, live forever. Is it through your children or is it through resurrection, which they deny? And so therefore they raise this, this strange issue uh, of a woman being raised from the dead and having seven husbands. Well, what does Jesus have to say in response to that? Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. So you can see the contrast between the desire to have children to perpetuate your line and as, as i said um, in that sense express some level of immortality biologically speaking and the resurrection so there's a switch from having children as inheritance in the land to being children of the resurrection so there's no longer a quote-unquote a need to reproduce but no longer uh, and also no longer needed to maintain the family name as i've said so He's not playing down marriage, but he's tying marriage and reproduction firmly to uh, this age in which we live now. Now, like angels is a reference to a common Pharisee belief in an intermediate state, disembodied but before God. But it's not suggesting that the the resurrection is like becoming an angel. So there's a there's a recognition in this, or an understanding that you have a bodily existence, and then you die, and then you're somehow present to God, and then there's a bodily resurrection. Now, what that, how that actually works, or how we understand that, or, or whatever else, I'm going to leave for another time. And what it mean? What does it mean to be like angels? Well, it it means function, um, not substance. So. In other words, you know, take a, a wooden oil torch versus a battery torch. They both give light. So when, when it says we're like angels, it doesn't mean that we literally become disembodied, but in that sense of no longer needing to reproduce, if you get, get my sense. Just as the, the oil torch and the battery torch give light, that doesn't mean that you go from being a battery torch to a, an oil torch. That's really weird. You know what I'm trying to say. We don't become literally angels, but like in a functional sense rather than a, 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 a matter of the substance. Hopefully that makes sense. So, I mean, we, I could take time to, to tease that apart. Jesus does, as we see, I think, give very strong options in a culture so driven by having a family Give us genuine options for being childless, for being single. I'm seeing a, a bit in my social media feed of late. I'm not sure where this it comes from, but w- you know, what if uh, the church was based around friendship rather than family per se? And some people would say that Jesus really rips apart the idea of the quote unquote nuclear family. I, there's there's nothing in the New Testament that says we well, shouldn't get married. It's just that there's a very strong and live option not to do so. And there's no denigration of children per se. It's just that it points to a future where, and it's a hard future to conceive, where having children, well, on the face of it, would seem that having children isn't a thing anymore. But this is not the main point of what's going on, or at least the main point I'm trying to make. And then Jesus goes on, and the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed. In the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him another question. Now, this is a quote of Exodus three fifteen to 16 which is a foundation text for Israel, that is, all Israel. Remember what I said earlier, Sadducees, nothing beyond the first five books of the Bible, not your prophets, not the stuff that talks about resurrection, not the teaching of the elders, uh, Pharisees, all that. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, what Jesus is drawing from the text has absolutely, utterly nothing to do with what the text was about. If you were to do that sort of thing uh, with a text in hermeneutic class, uh, sorry exegesis class, you'd get a very low mark indeed. And you see Paul do similar, weird things. uh, And that's just Judaism. that's just what they did. The key thing here, firstly, of course, is that, it, yes, it's Jesus. He, he claims authority that others could not. And you see that all the time in, in the Synoptic Gospels. Who is this man he teaches with such authority? That sounds like something in Mark, I'm pretty sure. Um, so throwing scripture around and coming up with radically new interpretations is not a new thing. And Jesus is claiming to be the hermeneutical principle that is the way in which the Hebrew scriptures are to be read, let alone the, the Greek New Testament for us, is through Jesus, through who he is, through his vocation, and ultimately through his, his death and resurrection. But it's interesting if you think about the fact that Jesus argues on this, uh, out of the Pentateuch means that he's arguing on the Sadducees' terms and beating them at their own game. What I mean by this then is that there's a principle here of arguing on the terms of others. In other words, if you want to push an issue, uh, maybe it's climate change, maybe it's a particular take on human sexuality, and you simply turn around and say, well, we can set the Bible aside and now we understand X, you are not going to gain conservatives' assent to ideas. I'm not saying I've got the secret to that, certainly on climate change. For a long period of time, I've got a great deal of frustration. I, I'll blame my baldness on that, rather than genetics. Eh? Uh, deep, deep frustration at evangelicals, people who say that um, they really value the Bible, and then you open it and say, well, you know, look at, um, look at the creation, reality, affirming nature of Scripture. And then it just gets relegated to a non-gospel issue. So it, it's a real um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it's a real kind of red not red flag. It's um, it's offering us a methodology to say, okay, someone has a particular view. Let's go to the texts and let's outdo them in the way in which we look at those texts. Uh, but you're, you're going to go beyond the text, aren't you? Because you need to understand them by understanding the contemporary culture. And there's a, all these issues to get around that would and the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it when you're claiming that you're just plainly reading the, the text when we all come from particular perspectives. So I can't, I have to come to terms with the fact that I'm a, an Australian, I'm a white male, heterosexual, cis, um, well educated, blah blah blah, and not necessarily center that perspective but be open to others. But as I'm stressing though, it's not about abandoning scripture. So if a progressive agenda is we can set the Bible aside, well all of it. This particular text, why? Where's it fit in the narrative? Where does it fit in, say Tom Wright's five-act play? Why is it that we can leave it behind? what's it really saying in its historical context etc etc do the hard work you're not being faithful to the god who oversaw in however you wish to define it the the the, the bible coming together this is the way i, I like to try and do eco theology so when i wrote a climate of hope with my friend claire claire harvey um claire said to me afterwards something other about my ability to speak evangelical <laughs> uh, you know, and I share that heritage and hold the Bible highly, whether or not all evangelicals would call me that, what progressives would call me, blah, 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 doesn't matter. The point is is that I have that particular approach, but perhaps more than some others um, on both sides of the argument, if you will. As I noted earlier, Jesus' creative theological leap would get you into trouble in, in preaching class, but it's typical of the New Testament and Second, Second Temple Judaism. So the passage is to remind Israel of God's covenant relationship with their ancestors and therefore with them from the time of Exodus to the rule by Rome. So it's how do I fit into the story of the Bible for a a first century um, Jewish believer? But Jesus then takes uh, the, the, the whole saying to mean for to him all of them are alive. That is, they're in the divine presence now. Uh, This is possibly an intermediate state. Um, So no Jew would have thought of them as being resurrected now, but it's a pointer towards the future. So he's picking up here on pharisaical beliefs, on on the resurrection, to which he's he's a lot closer. Um, The past covenant is binding with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and points to a future age of justice and the putting to rights that Tom Wright talks about. But that threatens... The political status quo of the Sadducees, who were happy enough in the, world, the way the world is, okay, Rome's in charge, but we're doing okay out of it, but also the boundaries of the Pharisees. Remember I said earlier, they weren't necessarily, quote-unquote, the bad guys. I mean, after the destruction of the temple, the Sadducees disappeared, because the temple disappeared, uh, but the Pharisees lived on in the rabbis, because they had some traction uh, with the people, they were... Trying to get their hands dirty and understand the Bible and apply it to everyday life. Uh, And while they made a heavy burden ultimately in trying to do that, the fact that they valued the entire of the Hebrew Bible and they really did um, see Rome as a problem and see uh, uncleanness as a problem is not the issue. Um, Instead, it became so calcified that they became so rigid in their boundaries and rejecting gentiles by and large unless they went through circumcision and so on is that we see time and time again in the gospels that jesus breaks past all those he redefines the whole idea of purity he is the one who makes pure and is not made impure by say touching a woman um, with um, an issue of blood or touching a dead body to raise a person from the dead so it's not as if impurity doesn't matter it's the way in which it's viewed is completely transformed Jesus is the one who's, who makes clean and is ultimately um, raised from the dead and changes the whole game. And so it's a challenge. The resurrection, or the logic of the resurrection, is a challenge both to the more conservative and the more progressive. So all conservativeness is challenged. The key question is, what direction does the resurrection point us in terms of our doctrines and our praxis? So we need to be careful, very, very careful with quote unquote plain reading or quote unquote clear teaching. Or progressivism is challenged. The resurrection of the body transforms the way uh, we read scripture. It doesn't mean we abandon it to keep up to date with social trends. Beware trying to be relevant, beware trying to be trendy, beware trying to make the gospel more palatable to moderns or postmoderns, to the new generation and hence throw the baby out with the bathwater. Matthew 13.52 says, And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So it's about the, the hermeneutic of love, the hermeneutic of the resurrection. It's seeing through the eyes of Jesus and the trajectory of what um, a kingdom of righteousness and justice looks like and how it shapes what we think and how we act and behave now. And all power is challenged. So the resurrection means non-violent revolution. The Pharisees were quick to jump into the, the revolution against Rome by violent means, and Jesus knew that that would only head one way. So challenging all earthly powers is what the resurrection does, and I think China gets this in the way in which it suppresses Christianity. And it reminds us not to get too close to and comfortable with power for a new age has begun. So what I'm not advocating in all of this is some third way, quote unquote, or, or some middle way. I mean, everybody likes to claim the center, don't they? That uh, reality is centered around them, their interests, their needs, their concerns, their ways of, of understanding the world. And people will say, you know, it's the classic Trumpism that there's good people and bad people on both sides. That's not what this is saying. And remember that in this particular parable, Jesus is siding more closely with the Pharisees than the Sadducees. The Sadducees, remember, were the ones in bed with Rome, the persecutors, the dominant political power. The Pharisees, amongst other things, wanted to upset that in the name of God. So they had more, a greater grasp of the truth than the Sadducees on this score. So I'm not for one saying that... That you sit in the middle. There are times to be really, really radical. What I'm saying is, whatever we think is radical or whatever we think is conservative is challenged by the resurrection, is challenged by the person of Jesus, who shatters all our preconceptions and ideas. And if we hold on to that as Christians, then we will be radical, we will be progressive, we will conserve the things that need to be conserved. and we will be genuinely pro-life. We will be a whole manner of things that are truer to the person of Jesus that won't always be quote-unquote biblical because Jesus himself transcended uh, by fulfilling in, in, uh, in, a, in a very real way um, what the Hebrew Bible was driving at, but really transforms the way in which we read parts of it. So I hope that's, that's helpful. It's, um, we live in interesting times where things continue to be polarised. So we nearly, as Christians, interested in, in peace and justice and righteousness and purity and all those things, don't throw any of those away, but how does Jesus understand those things? And um, that will keep us humble, because I think that's that's a need of, of progressives as well as conservatives. Um, even if, um, and I should say in all of this too, that I, I, my my bone of contention with the idea of progressive is it sounds somewhat pretentious, you know, like that phrase, uh, being on the wrong side of history, it's almost a meaningless phrase. What we're trying to do is, is to be Christ-like in the church, and that will be far more radical than um, political conservatism often is, um, and will side with agendas and people um, that really need our attention. Anyway, I've waffled on long enough. Um, Again, uh, it's great to be back and hope to have a bunch of guests this year and really get into some interesting books and ideas and um, just enjoy the discipline of of speaking to you and and looking forward to hearing your feedback in various fora. Once more, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.